Thank the Lord for His care. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to 2 Chronicles 14. 2 Chronicles 14. Last week we began the series, and I'm not, this is an undetermined length uh, series. Um, and I, I'll tell you why. Um, we started, of course, last week at, 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 uh, as we've looked at the life of Asa, we want, we're talking about a commitment. And uh, at the end, Asa didn't, Asa didn't finish well. Asa didn't finish well. But he started well. He started well, and I want to talk about that. But I'm trying to remember, I think, let me just double check here so that I don't, uh, I don't just... Yes, I have, I have six points in this sermon, and I knew that if I tried preaching six of them all in one, all in one shot, that uh, I'd get shot. So uh, <laughs> we're not going to do that. We're going to, we're, um, I'm not sure if it'll be three and three, or if it'll be two, two and two, or who knows what'll happen. I don't know what's going to happen. But we want the Lord to have His way, and I hope we get an opportunity. Uh, I, I I really hope we get an opportunity to really um, hear um, how we can be better committed to the Lord. If there's ever been a time we needed to be committed, it's 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 these days. It's these days. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Uh, we're gonna. We're going to start in verse 2, and we'll go down to verse 7, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 15 and uh, read the first 13 verses there. So get a little bit of an idea of some of uh, Asa's uh, time as king. Second Chronicles chapter 14, beginning in verse 2, And Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God, for he took away the altars of the strange gods in the high places and broke down the images, cut down the groves, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law which law and the commandment. And he took away out of the, all the cities of Judah the high places, the images, and the kingdoms was quiet before him. And he built fenced cities in Judah the land had rest, and he had no war in those years, because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore he said unto Judah, let us build these cities and make them about them walls. This has nothing to do with Trump, all right? Just so, just so you know, this is not, this, this is, all right. And towers and gates and bars, while the land is yet before us, because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he hath given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. Let's turn over, if you would, to chapter 15. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah the son of Obed, and he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while he be with him. And if ye, be not, uh, and if ye seek him, he will be found of you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season Israel hath been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. And when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and saw him, he was found to them. And in those times there was no peace to him that went out or to him that came up, but great vexations were upon the inhabitants of the countries. And nation was destroyed of nation, and city of city, and God did vex them with all adversity. Be strong, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Obed the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he had taken from the Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon, and for they fell to him out of Israel in abundance. 
when they saw that the Lord, his God, was with him. So they gathered themselves together to Jerusalem in the third month, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. And they offered unto the Lord at that same time the spoil, which they had brought seven hundred oxen and seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God out of their, of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul that whosoever would not uh, seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those who stood for what's right, even when it wasn't popular, even when it was difficult. And we ask, Lord, that as we study the life of Asa, his, his kingship, that, Father, that we would learn, that we would learn from his success and from his failure. Father, that we would be better committed to you. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we started off with his, uh, Asa's failure. And I, I kind of hated to start there, to be honest, because I like to be positive. But I didn't want to end the series on a negative. That would just be miserable. So we started with the bad, and hopefully it'll get better from there. But Asa's kingship, what it, I mean, what his whole life comes to the end, and he messes up. He messes it all up. After a life full of commitment to God, a, a life full of, of serving the Lord, so many good things happening under his kingship. I don't mean to be negative and, and down, but one of the every time we sing when we all get to heaven, I have a, a, a sadness. It's such a good and happy song. We should it should it, there should be no sadness. But every time we sing it, that word "all" really bothers me because I have sung that song with many who will not be there, and it always every time we sing it, I just that all just really. I wonder, in this group, will it be all? Every time. It doesn't, it's not that I think less of you or, or anything like that. I'm just simply saying that every time that we sing that song, that word all just always strikes me as, I hope it's true. I hope it's true that all, we all have to finish well. It's not just how we start. Some people start poorly. And I've heard many testify, I... Uh, how many times they failed as they were trying to get established. And, and that's my testimony, is that I struggled to, to get started. But, but it isn't how you start, it's how you finish. It's how you finish. And uh, I know some, some act like, it, uh, like there's, they have this great shame or great disappointment in how they started. It's not how you start. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Asa started well, but he finished poorly. And God gave warnings. He, he sent a prophet and he sent disease, but none of those things could soften Asa's heart once he set it against the Lord and set it to his own way. But Asa started so well, and I want to focus these next uh, few uh, messages on, on what Asa did right in the beginning of his ministry. But I'm hoping, and, and, and I'll just be honest, my, my hope, my prayer uh, is that, that we, as we're approaching a revival, will reestablish our commitment to the Lord, that we will uh, freshen our commitment. And if there's been areas that we've let down, that even before revival, that we will begin to, to firm those things up and so that when revival comes that God can do greater and deeper works. I noticed that with Asa, the very first thing that, that we see about Asa is that he sought the Lord. He sought the Lord. We have to start there. We have to start with seeking the Lord. That's, that's the first step in being committed to the Lord. You can't, you can't just say, I'm going to be committed to the Lord and, and not seek God. That seems reasonable. It seems like it would be common sense. Maybe I shouldn't even have to preach that. But I'm afraid that we do. 
Because there seems to be a sense that we can just, I don't know, just become a Christian by our family? That we somehow inherit being a Christian? That uh, everyone else in my family is saved, my parents were saved, my grandparents were saved, and so I'm saved. I wished it worked that way. I wished, you know, that, that since my wife and I were saved and, and sanctified, that uh, my children were all born without a sin nature. Man, that would have been wonderful. I think it would be easier to get people sanctified if that was the way it worked. I tell you, sometimes uh, your, our children can show their carnality at a very, very young age. And parents know what I'm talking about. And if you're not a parent, well, look at some of our kids sometimes that aren't sanctified yet. <laughs> we see it. We know it. But folks, we've got, we've got to seek the Lord for salvation. But, but it doesn't end there. We have to seek the Lord every day of our walk. Every day we have to seek the Lord. And I think that's a real challenge. World War II was, was on and the United States was, was getting involved. Germany, of course, their, their military was on top. They were doing great things. I'm not sure in the history of the world if there was an ever a better military arm than the Nazi Germany's military. Their, their, their generals were, were top-notch. Their leadership, their, the commitment of their soldiers, for them to be able to press world powers to the brink all pretty well by themselves, is a testament to their military genius, their manufacturing genius, their supply genius. I know it's kind of strange to praise Nazis, and certainly they're not praiseworthy in many areas, but in their military arm, they were amazing. And the Germans had started to press towards Russia. And... The USSR recognized quickly that if they did not get help, they would fall also. Russia in the USSR lost more people in World War II than any other nation. In fact, if I remember correctly, I might be wrong on this, but if I remember correctly, they lost more than all the other nations combined. Russia did not have a good military. They had a lot of men but their military was not up to what the other militaries were of that day. Stalin recognized that they were in trouble. And so they got together, Stalin and got together with President Roosevelt, and they had a conversation about what they were going to do about it. And Roosevelt said to Stalin, he said, you know, he said, uh, we, would, we would be willing to send finances, we would be willing to send support, said, but the problem is you've closed all your churches, and if you want our support, you're going to have to stop persecuting Christians, you're going to have to open the doors to the churches. Oh, for a president with that kind of backbone, that would just stand up for the church and say, this is the way it's going to be. Roosevelt did, whatever you think of Roosevelt. I don't know exactly altogether why he did that. I don't know if it was a personal conviction that he felt like that needed to happen. Perhaps some have suggested that, that because many, in fact, most uh, Americans at that time were Christians, that in the taxpayers would be paying for this, that it was the only way he could convince the taxpayers who are already paying for a world war to in, be willing to help out the USSR. And so I, I, whether it was because of his backbone or whether it was because he was afraid of the taxpayers uh, back home being upset about uh, an atheistic country helping them. I'm not sure his motivations. But Roosevelt gave the ultimatum. You want our money? You want our resources? Open your churches. 
Stalin thought it over. They'd been persecuting the church for 20 years. Church is stamped out. There won't be any Christians. He said, you know what? He says, You're, if, if you want our church doors open, that's fine. We'll open our church doors. So in the spring of that year, they opened up the church doors, believing that the churches would remain empty. And on the very first Sunday of the churches being opened, the streets were crowded and the, the pews were full. They had tons and tons of people in church, and Stalin couldn't understand it. For 20 years, we've persecuted them. We, we, we should have had these stamped out. Why are they in church? Why are they here? They had a commitment in the midst of persecution that they would stay true. I once met a man who, uh, um, who had been under persecution who had been under the time of uh, oppression for, and if you were a Christian, that you suffered for it. He had since moved to the United States and had, had uh, become a, a legal immigrant. And uh, part of, and so I had this opportunity to have a conversation one-on-one -on -one with him. And I asked him, I said, I said, how, how do you stay true under such persecution? And this is what he said to me. He says, it's harder to stay true in America than it was for me under persecution. He said, when we were under persecution, the government was the threat. We had an outside threat. We knew any moment we'd be called upon to give our lives for our faith. But here, we're comfortable. Here we have materialistic uh, materialism that's constantly chipping away at our Christianity. He says it's become so easy to let go on your personal seeking of the Lord because there is no external threat. The threat is internal. He says it was easier for me to stay true under persecution. And as I hear that and as I think about that, I'm saddened to realize that as a church, we get pulled into that temptation of all is well. We have so much. God has blessed us with so much. There's no external threat. Oh, I, maybe we were worried about, about losing some rights here or there, but really this, this morning, no one's really afraid for being a Christian. None of us are, are, are worried about losing our jobs for our faith, unless there would be something where they'd make us work on Sunday or maybe something like that. But, but really, we don't face the threats. And so day by day, it's easy to get comfortable. Day by day, it's easy to, to say, you know, like the, like the wealthy farmer that Jesus told who had his barns full, you know, I'll just tear down these barns and build bigger barns. We've got, I, I've got a lot of stuff. I might as well, you know, we, we, need, a, we need bigger houses so we can hold more, all of our stuff. Folks, I'm not preaching against having things. I think things are, are, are good in their place. But, but what I'm trying to help us to understand this morning is that because we've been given so many blessings, our blessings make us less likely to stay true. Because we don't need God like some of those that are suffering under persecution need God. You know, it's hard for us to realize that we need God as much on our best day of our life as we need Him on the worst day of our life. On our worst day, we recognize it. When things are falling apart, when a death of a child is like the wheelers that it went through, and uh, the, a cancer diagnosis, a, 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 a tragedy that, that falls us, we recognize our desperate need for the Lord. But most days, most days, we have plenty to eat. Most days, we've got, we've got uh, uh, good vehicles and that, that won't let us down, or you hopefully won't let us down. Most days, 
We don't face a desperate need for God to help us on that day. We don't recognize the spiritual threats. We don't, re we don't recognize the battles that are going on for our souls. And we don't even know, we don't even recognize the opportunities that we've missed because we weren't desperate before the Lord because there was no reason to be desperate. There's no reason to seek the Lord. Asa's father He only served three years as king, but they were in an ambushment. Jeroboam had ambushed them. They haven't been living right. The nation of, of Judah had been living wrong, but now they, they're ambushed. They've got, they're surrounded by, by the people of Israel, and, and, and the Bible says they called upon the Lord. In the midst of this ambush, they call upon the Lord, and God gives them a great victory, and they steal uh, and conquer cities of, of Israel, and they become part of Judah. And the people of Israel start to see that, that God's working and God's moving there in Judah, and people are leaving Israel. People from Simeon and other tribes are coming down to Judah and Benjamin to be a part of where God's working and moving. All because in a desperate situation, even when they're not serving God the way they should be, God answered their call. And I think about our little church, and I wonder, I wonder, where's the tribe of Simeon? Where's, where's those that, from the others that, that, that don't know and haven't experienced the presence of God? Are they recognizing that God's moving here and working here? Our community, do they know that God's working and moving here? Are we seeking the Lord? Or have we gotten comfortable? Have we gotten comfortable? One of my pastor friends, he posted a question on Facebook. It was an interesting question. He says, what do you consider spiritual fast food? That was a really interesting conversation. Just be honest, different viewpoints. Not very many people liked my viewpoint, but that was all right. But listen, uh, just reading through some of them, and, and, and you know what concerns me is, is that while there's some disagreement and debate, there was a lot of different answers. And do you know in America we have a lot of spiritually poor nutrition venues? You know, we've talked about how, you know, uh, you know, media loves to talk about how uh, unhealthy McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's and Chick-fil-A and all your favorite fast foods are, and they are not healthy. If you think it's healthy, even their salads aren't even that healthy. Not a lot of good options. When we think about spiritually... How, how are we feeding our souls? Someone suggested that their devotion, a spiritual fast food is when the only devotions that we use is a devotional book. We don't get into the scripture. I thought, you know, there's a lot of truth there. A lot of truth there. We open up our streams in the desert, and it's a good book. We pull it, we open it up, and we read one verse of scripture, and then we read what? Five dozen sentences of another person's thoughts. And there's our devotions. One sentence from the Bible, and five dozen sentences from so somebody else. And we think we're going to be spiritually nutritious and healthy. I think there's a lot of truth in that in that statement. I'm I like streams in the desert. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it. I think I own two copies, maybe three. Streams in the desert is a great great devotional. It's it stood the test of time. 
There's more modern ones. Jesus Calling. Folks, I'm not, I'm not saying devotionals are wrong. I'm saying when that is your only spiritual food that you get on a daily basis, and then you come to church and you're hoping to get filled up, you can't eat spiritual junk food all the time and then hope on Sunday to get enough steak to get you through the rest of the week. You'll grow lean in your soul. You'll grow lean in your soul. Do you know why we do why we fall into that trap? It's because we need an easy Christianity because our lives are so easy. You say you don't know what I'm going through. I know I don't know what you're going through. But you know the problem is, is when the tr- crises hit, they really hit us hard because we're so unused to facing them. There's an old Chinese proverb, and, and, I, and it, it, it translates a, a difficult, but, but here's, here's, here's about the best that, that, that I've heard the translation is, no food, one problem. Lots of food, lots of problems. When you have, are, are, are missing food, when, when, when your survival is at stake, you, that is the only problem you have, and you focus on that. You'll do whatever you can to get, make sure that you survive that day, that you get a meal that day. And any other problems, I mean, you don't have any marriage problems when that's the problem. You don't, have, you don't have problems with your kids when everybody's hungry. Everybody's focused on that problem. But once we've got food and we've got shelter and we've got, uh, we've got uh, a comfortable life, do you know what happens? Suicide rates go up. Depression rates go up. All these things, mental health Ill, uh, issues go up. The United States and all of our blessings and all, of our, uh, all that we have are... Among our women, 25% of American women are taking a medication for mental health. And, that's, and if you're taking a medication for mental health, good, keep doing it. This is not a statement against that. What I'm trying to help us to understand is because we have so much, we don't realize what desperate situation we are in spiritually. We must, like Asa, seek the Lord. We have to seek the Lord. And I'm not saying the mental health issues because you're not seeking the Lord. All right, that, that, don't, don't misunderstand me. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to help us to understand is, is that the more that we are blessed, the more likely it is for us to grow lean in our souls. And I believe that's why Asa fell eventually, is because he didn't need to seek the Lord anymore. He already had so many blessings. God had blessed him for so many years. And then when a crisis hit, he didn't know how to seek God. He had grown lean with all the blessings. He had stopped seeking the Lord. It became a ritual and a routine. He went to, he went to the uh, temple and, and he would go and hear the teaching priest. And, and they went through all the motions day after day, year after year. And when crisis showed up, Asa didn't know how to seek the Lord anymore. He was out of practice. He was out of practice. And just before a revival, both the spring and the fall, before a camp meeting, as preachers, we have to keep calling our people back to seeking the Lord. Because if we don't continually remind us to do it, even as pastors, if we don't continue to remind ourselves to do it, we will get out of practice because we have so many blessings. We just will. Because God's given us so much and there's no desperateness. There's no desperateness. And if we're not desperate before the Lord, I'm afraid, I'm afraid when the crisis comes, we won't know how to call on Him. And when God sends 
messengers and God sends judgment instead of softening our hearts it'll harden our hearts because we're so used to the blessings that when God takes those blessings away to get our attention instead of going back to him we become angry because he's withheld the blessing you know if you have a child and you're a poor family I, I remember hearing stories about in the de- times of the Depression. Of course, it's Christmas. Parents are trying to have something. And, you know, sometimes they'd get an apple or, or, or they'd, dad would go out in the workshop and try to make something, or some wooden toys for the kids, and they'd have a little something for Christmas. Try doing that to our teenagers today who expect the latest Xbox and PlayStation and cell phones and And they want to drive uh, uh, fancy cars instead of the beaters that I had to drive when I first learned how to drive. Try doing that today for our kids. What will happen, that Christmas won't be a happy Christmas that that they talk about for their children and their grandchildren. No, it'll be a time when they'll become angry and they'll believe that we don't love our kids because we've taken away the blessings that we bestow on our kids all the time. I'm not saying it's wrong to give our kids things, but what I'm trying to help us to understand is we are those petulant teenagers spiritually when God says, all right, I'm hold, withholding the blessings because you need to draw nigh unto me. You, you've, allowed my, you've served me for the blessings. You're not serving me for me. You're, you're, you're just comfortable. And instead of, of saying, Lord, I do need to draw close, we become those teenagers fussing and throwing a fit because we didn't get the latest iPhone for Christmas because God didn't give us all the blessings we want and we demand. Oh, that God would help us to seek the Lord even when we are in the midst of great blessings so that He doesn't have to send judgment and He doesn't have to send trauma in order to get our attention again. Oh, folks, I, I don't want revivals I don't want two times a year that we've got to get back to where we need to be spiritually. Revival should not be reviving the church because it's almost dead every six months. That would be terrible. It'd be terrible to have to, to every, uh, every six months, to have to resuscitate the church. My prayer, my aim is, is that a revival will eventually become a place where, where the God adds to the church, that it revives the community because the church is so on fire already. That time revival comes around, we don't need reviving. The, the fire is burning already hot. That eventually that will get to the place where, where when we revival fires start uh, uh, sweeping across our church at the community, he has to get, get something because the building can't contain what we have. But oftentimes, revival is we need something. We need something. We need God to do something for us. Oh, that God would help us. One of my, one of the pastors I know, he said, he said, you know, he says, I go, every revival, it seems like someone will say to the evangelist something like, thank you for that message. It's been a long time since we've heard that kind of preaching. He said, I just preached that same basic text and the same basic message four weeks ago. It seems like every single time I have preached those same kind of messages and they're saying to the evangelist, it's been so long since we've heard it. He says, what's wrong? You know what's wrong? We're comfortable. We're comfortable, and we need, in a revival, we, we stir ourselves a little bit, and we realize, oh, we, need, oh, oh, we might need this. We might need this. Oh, that God would help us to not need reawakened and revived and stirred every revival, but that, that we are a people that seek the Lord all the time. All the time. Well, it's a good thing I'm not planning to preach the remaining five of them. Good night. Good night.
that clock goes too fast on a Sunday morning. Not only did Asa seek the Lord, but he was strong in the Lord. I want to ask you a question this morning. Where's your security? Where's your security? You know, we're, we're going to be having, in a, on the 22nd, we're having a, a discussion on, on church security, and it's good. We need, to, we need to have that discussion. Unfortunately, we, we, we live in a time when churches are no longer the sanctuaries they used to be. So we, I recognize we have to do that. I recognize, and, and we did this on purpose, we changed out the doors to coded so that people could get in and use them, the people that we trusted, but also so that there was only one entryway for visitors to be able to come into our church so that we would be safe, or at least as safe as possible. We've already been thinking about those things. I know that many of you, maybe all of us this, this uh, morning, are, are big 2A people. I can say 2A, and you, a lot of you know what that means. Second Amendment. Many are, uh, believe and have uh, in their homes a, a gun or, or some other method of, of self-preservation, self-defense. You don't need to tell me. But I, I suppose that perhaps someone even here could be concealed carrying this morning. And I feel bad for anybody who came through that door that shouldn't be coming through that door if you are. We value in America security. In fact, the reason our government is shut down is a, over a disagreement between two political parties about the best way to provide security for Americans. That's really what it boils down to. One side says we need a wall on the Mexican border to protect us, and others say, no, that's not the best way to have security. The best way to have security is by having a, a better uh, process to allow immigrants in. If we bring more people in, then we'll have less issues with security. It's a disagreement. And I know that we all have our opinions on which, who's right. Okay, this isn't the, I'm not trying to get into the debate, but the but the belief, both sides are touting that they believe in security. Security is one of the biggest, most important values of Americans. As of 2016, we spend more money on our military, on our defense of our country, than the next 10 countries combined. That's amazing how much money we spend on defense. Ten, top 10 countries, are, well, 2 through 11 combined to get to us. At one point, we thought it was going to be 12, but Saudi Arabia jumped their, uh, their uh, defense by uh, 20 billion and a couple other countries up there by 5 billion. So it, it lowered us down to the top 10 instead of the top 12. That's amazing how much money we spend on defense. I'm not saying whether that's good or bad, all right? This is not this is not about politics. I'm just trying to help us to understand how much Americans value security. We've, talk, we've talked about Star Wars programs where we can shoot, saddle, uh, shoot the, uh, missiles out of the sky. We, uh, we're all, anybody who's a threat to us, we, we make a big deal about it. North Korea, can they hit us with a nuclear bomb? Uh, I mean... All I have to do is say that, and people's anxieties go through the roof. Little North Korea, we could take out with two bombs. Little pipsqueak nation, and yet we make such a big fuss over it. I just saw, I didn't read the article, I just saw this week a, a, a headline that Americans are afraid that perhaps, uh, mil, mil, not Americans, I'm sorry, military leaders are afraid that, the, that our aircraft carriers are too big to fail. And, the, and the, the subheading was, there's a, a concern against, uh, about military leaders that if one of our aircraft carriers were ever sunk, what it would do to the morale of Americans because our aircraft carriers have caused us to be the number one Navy in the world. No other nation can put out the aircraft carrier size that we can, and not as many as we can. Our aircraft carriers make us the number one military in the world all by themselves. And if one of them would get sunk... There's concern about what it would do to the morale of Americans. Isn't that amazing how important we place uh, the value of security in our nation? No other nation 
value security as much as we do. As much as we do. And here's the question. Where is your security? Now, I, I'm not suggesting to you that that means that we don't have a military and uh, spending and we don't have uh, uh, 2A and, and all these things. I'm not suggesting that because if you read in there, Asa builds up the walls around the cities. Asa did have a military. Asa did do what a king is supposed to do to provide security for his nation. But it says he was strong in the Lord. His security wasn't in these walls and it wasn't in the, uh, the spears and, and the men of, of his army. His security was in the Lord. And here's my concern. We can get so caught up into debates of, of how much we should spend on our military and the 2A and we can get so caught up in this wall thing that folks that we get where we think that's the security of our nation and the security of our families. It's not. Our security, our strength is in the Lord. And little nation of Israel is when it was in its infancy. And the Arab nations gathered around them in order to destroy them. And Israel had nothing for an, uh, an air force. They had nothing for a military. The Arab nations around them were wealthy off their oil and off all of, uh, of uh, their exports. And they, were, and they had a military that was too strong and too great for Israel. And yet in seven days, God gave them the victory. And they had no answer. No answer, except it must be God. You can, to this day, you can, you can go on uh, YouTube and watch videos about how they talk about how amazing it was. Just the luck. I mean, things were just perfect over and over again, daring military attempts that Israel did, that they never should have worked. But Israel was desperate. And they would win. And military leaders would say, how did that happen? It's incredible. Israel wasn't relying on having the best air force, because they didn't. And they, not because they had the best tanks or the best military, because they were a new nation. The reason Israel survived is because their strength was in the Lord. Amen. And I'll just be honest with you this morning, wall or no wall, 2A or no 2A, aircraft carriers and the like or no aircraft carriers or not, we serve a God who is our strength and our refuge and a very present help in time of trouble. As much as we can believe in those things or not believe in those things, whether you think it's right or wrong, folks, what we've got to get to the place of as Christians is that it's more important to serve God than it is to get into debates and arguments over these things and lose our testimony in the process. And that's what I'm concerned about so much this, in our present uh, time of, of tribalism and, and this way, it has to be this way or that way. And, and we get into these, these conflicts over things that folks and the eternally won't matter. I don't mind having a discussion privately. I don't mind uh, talking if, if, if it's uh, good-natured and so forth. But what I'm concerned about is that we will ruin our testimonies because it's all we can talk about is our security because it's the most important issue in America right now, it seems like. We make such a big issue over that that we forget that God is our security. And God's able to keep us if we're in, under communism, God is able to keep us if, no matter what the doctors tell us. God's able to keep us no, no matter what the bank tells us, whether they're going to renew our mortgage or not. If folks, we've got a security that has more power than all the armies of all the world combined. 
And I'll tell you something this morning, I believe with all my heart, there's been more victories that have been won on the knees of God's saints than have been ever been won on a battlefield. But we keep forgetting that. We keep getting pulled away from the prayer closet and into the debates in the marketplace. Folks, our security isn't going to be in a bomb or in a plane or in some boat or in some wall or in some president. Our security is in the Lord. It is our strong and mighty tower. And let me tell you something this morning. The host of hell can't break through that wall. Satan can't tunnel underneath of it. And Satan can't bomb it. And he can't do anything against the wall of God's protection. And I know the Lord allows that wall to be moved in like he allowed for Job. He allowed that hedge of protection to be moved in. And sometimes uncomfortably so. But I'll tell you something this morning. That there's never been a wall or a bomb or a gun or a tank or anything like that that has been able to thwart God's will. If God wants to move in the hedge of protection, He'll move it in despite all of our best laid plans. Now, I'm not trying to sound like I'm against these things. I really don't want you leaving here saying that I'm against security. And I would, If I was against it, I would have told the board I was having nothing to do with this security thing that we're doing on the 22nd. Not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about not being prepared. I'm not talking about being foolish. I'm talking about tr- putting our trust in God. You can be wise and prayerful at the same time. You can be wise and prayerful at the same time. But our security isn't in our wisdom. It isn't. Our security isn't in our strength. It's not in our alarms and it's not in our it's not in our military might. It's not in our satellites and our airplanes and all those things. I ask you this morning, where's your security? You know, I'm not just talking about physical security this morning. You know, we talk about the, uh, those that believe in eternal security and, and how that's wrong, and it is. But folks, sometimes we got a problem in believing in eternal insecurity. Saved today, not saved. May I wake up in the morning and oh, I'm not sure if I feel anything. I'm not sure if I'm saved. And we've got people in and out spiritually. They don't know where they're at. Folks, we are secure in Christ. Amen. Our salvation is not up for debate. And it's not something we lose in our sleep. And it's not something we lose by mistake. It's not something that leaks out and no, you're not aware of it. And I'm, I know preachers preach that way, but folks, it's not right. If you want to lose out spiritually, you will have to make a choice to do so. Now, it can leak out through neglect. You can, you can re, uh, not do your devotions, and you can be hit or miss with your church attendance, and, and, you, can, and you can not be uh, seeking the Lord, and you can and have a, all these things happen, and, and you might find yourself in the midst of crisis not strong enough to withstand in the midst of temptation. But you won't accidentally wake up and find yourself outside of salvation. You're not going to be standing in line on the day of judgment unsure of whether your name's in the book or not. Waiting for your turn. You will know where you stand because you've made a choice either to have your name in the Lamb's Book of Life or whether you wanted to live your own way or not. This eternal insecurity is as much nonsense as fighting and fighting over whether we're going to have this or that or the other defense system. It's silly. 
And it's a trick of the enemy to bring confusion, especially to our young people, but to our older people alike. And unfortunately, sometimes as, the, as preachers, we've, in order to get people to come to the altar, we've talked people out of what they had in order to pad our numbers. And it's nonsense. I will never call back an evangelist who does that. I'll just tell you that right now. There's no, one of the worst things we can do is shipwreck someone's faith just so that we can feel good about how many went to the altar. But folks, it's not, it's not often the preacher's fault that you've shipwrecked your faith. It's often you've, you've ran into the rocks yourself over and over and over again because you haven't gotten yourself established. You, you've failed to run to the strong tower in the midst of your temptation, and you kept falling in your own because you were relying in your own strength and your own power for your spiritual defense. And it took me a long time when I first got saved to get this figured out. The reason I kept tripping up and falling and in and out growing uh, when I first got saved was not because God wasn't a strong and mighty tower. It was because I kept trying to do it in my own power, and my own strength. Where's your security this morning? Is it in a gun? Is it in your sword, your spiritual sword and armor? Or is it in the strong tower that is our God? I see that time is gone. I've only got two points. We've got four more. That's why I told you it was undetermined how many sermons this would be. But folks, a commitment to the Lord is going to require us to first seek God and continually seek the Lord. And then... We're going to have to be strong in the Lord, not strong in ourselves, not strong in our government or our military or whatever it is that we would put our security, the big bank account, whatever it might be that we use, to, our nest egg, whatever we, whatever we would use for security other than the Lord, folks, they will fail us. But our God cannot fail. He cannot fail. Let's stand together. Amen. Brother Gary Skank, would you dismiss us in prayer?